You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today we are bringing you, we're breaking our format, our usual format, our new usual format a little bit, Neil. Uh, we have the opportunity to sit down with the general chair and the senior program chair for this year's iteration of the International Conference on Learning Representations, iClear, which was entirely virtual this year. Alexander Rush of Cornell and Shakir Mohammed of DeepMind. Thank you so much both for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much. Hi, Neil. Hi, Catherine. Great to be here. I'd love to do a little bit of background on iClear first, just sort of like mainly to give us a, a sort of a context for the conference in, in the ecosystem of other conferences. You want to know where, how did the conference get to where it is today is yes. what you want to know, Catherine. Thank you, Neil. That sounds like a very good question. How did the conference get to where it is today? This year was um, already breaking ground. It was going to be taking place in Ethiopia, which I think is the first time any of the large conferences have been held on the African continent. Um, but then all of a sudden we had this massive global change and it was decided that the conference would take place entirely virtually. So Sasha, I, I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about how you see iClear fitting into like the larger system of conferences and what your experience with it has been and and how this change took place. Sure. So uh, this was the eighth International Conference of Learning Representations, but it was run as a workshop for the first several years. So it started in 2013. And I think what's remarkable about the conference is it's been experiencing exponential growth for the last, basically for its entire history. And so it's a conference where everyone is kind of a newcomer. Each year we have um, most people kind of experiencing it for their first time. I think personally, I didn't really attend iClear till about three or four years ago, and I was coming from it from the natural language processing community, so conferences like ACL and MNLP, that actually makes up a, a relatively large part of kind of this multidisciplinary area. Um, it's a conference that kind of welcomes a kind of a large group of people doing different forms of representation learning and deep learning and things of that form. I think it differs from some of the other machine learning conferences in that it's a bit more experimental. I think a lot of people know it for its experimental reviewing format and for the kind of structure of how it's laid out. And I think one of the reasons it was so interesting to work on is because it's a conference that kind of allows for more experimentation in its format and its structure. And we took that to heart in both the venue this year and also in kind of our change to the virtual conference format. So there's sort of like the experimental stuff it does on its own. It was the first to do open reviewing. And then there's the experimental stuff that's forced upon it. So I find so amazing is what you had to do this year is, first of all, you were taking a major ML conference to the African continent for the first time, which was a major undertaking in itself. And then you had to cancel the first major conference on the African continent. D tell us how, how that, I, I don't know who's best to sort of speak to that, Shakir, perhaps do you want to tell us how that came about and, and how you reacted? Yes, I think um, we were actually quite far along in our uh, work dealing with uh, the Ethiopian conference. It was going to be in a great venue in the Millennium Hall, very close to the airport in Ethiopia. Lots of things have been set up, even down to the whole schedule of the conference itself was set up. The, there were going to be three parallel tracks. We're going to experiment with the conference in that way. All the keynotes, all the speaking, the setup of the posters, all of these kind of things were done. And then it was actually quite a difficult time 
the end of February, the beginning of March, when it was very clear that the long run of COVID and would come into effect and a lot of consideration and debate with many, many different kinds of people around actually cancelling the conference. But I think in the end, um, you know, it was obviously a good decision forced us to experiment in a new way. So I was pretty happy with the with the end <laughs> to, to actually get to do it. So what was the thing that, uh, Shakir, you were perhaps happiest about, about the way the conference went? Perhaps the thing that surprised you the most? Because yeah, I know for both of you, I mean, it must have been so much stress. Just organising a major conference like this is like major stress in, in the base case. And then organising one where you have to reorganise the entire conference within the space of a, a few weeks. I just can't uh, imagine it. But let's start with the positive things. Um, and, and perhaps we'll start with, we'll start with Sasha. Say, Sasha, what was the thing that you, you were most pleasantly surprised about, about the, the conference? Yeah, so there were, I think there were a lot of things that kind of were unexpected or kind of emergent behavior that, that came up during the conference itself. The part that I think I spent the most time on and was most excited about was the the social interactions, particularly chat and the socials that emerged. Um, I think that was the part we were most worried about. It's the part I get the most out of a conference is talking to experts in the field, kind of having conversations that you didn't expect or learning about papers that you, you didn't know that were coming. We really built that around a kind of Slack-like chat experience and seeing the different topic rooms emerge. There was a very interesting creative AI room that came out of nowhere. The RL community had several very interesting events that were just so neat to attend. Um, and then we also ran several mentoring sessions just kind of out of nowhere in the middle of the conference that were super interesting and kind of almost better than I would have imagined that could have occurred, say, getting a drink at a bar at a, at a normal conference. That That's really interesting. It's the social part, which is one would almost think uh, that's one of the toughest bits. I guess it's just a different type of social experience. And of course, everyone's sort of locked away anyway. So any social experience is great. Shakir, how, how about for you? Was it also the social part? Yeah, pleasantly surprising. There were so many things, I think, from just the, our ability to engage with our speakers. So, you know, usually you get a keynote speaker comes up to the stage, they end their talk, you get this one question very quickly, and everyone has to rush off to the next, to the next talk, to the next poster session. But here we actually got to have a very long, meaningful conversation with our keynote speakers, very much like this kind of podcast. We get to take questions off the chat, take live questions, really get to engage with them, go a bit more deeply. But I I think the thing that I found most surprising was maybe to pick up on the experimental nature of the conference in the virtual format the conference itself becomes a new kind of environment in which you can experiment and play in. And particularly for us, we used a lot of machine learning tools in the design of the conference. So in the reviewing process, we had some latent variable models that we used to do calibration of the scores. The natural language tool, Sasha can tell you a lot more, that does the visualization and the recommendation. We actually do have a recommender system in the back end. There are questions around fairness of the recommendations that we are given, that they are equally, every paper is equally represented. And so I think there's really something powerful about the virtual conference that now our own conference is an environment in which we can play and redeploy the work that's actually presented at the conference. I thought that was for me pretty something special. I, I, I don't want to say it almost, but it, it, you're kind of like saying it was like second life, but with a purpose, you know, rather than... <laughs> 
So Shakir, I'd love to dig in some more on those tools a little bit, because I think one of the things that a lot of conferences and a lot of in-person gatherings these days are just thinking about is like, okay, well, a virtual meeting is just one where everybody gets on Zoom now and we just do the same thing, but we do it as far apart from each other as we possibly can. But you guys spent the time to create all these tools that, Shakir, I think you were mentioning when you were talking about the sort of like eating your own dog food process that you used a lot of AI to create the conference for curating information, organizing things, exploring the the papers that you had. Can you tell me, and, and I believe, and this is the rumor that's going around, that Sasha and Shakir, you guys made a lot of those yourselves, right? Can you tell me a little bit about the process of making those and like how you decided that these were needed? How did you go from, okay, we can't go to Ethiopia, so we'll have the lar- the world's largest Zoom call, to thinking about curating this information in a way that's going to be more efficacious in, a, in like a digital environment? How did you make those curatorial choices? For me, I think when we designed the conference, we had, we, so we actually met for six weeks, three days a week, 5.30 PM UK time, uh, for the entire time. And there were two principles we used in the design of the conference. And one of them was that we needed to be accessible. And the other one was to be inclusive. And so everything was designed around these two kinds of principles. And so inclusion meant it needed to be worldwide and global. So it doesn't matter if you are in Sydney or in Lima or in Johannesburg or in London, the conference should not force you to work at a bizarre hour. And one of the things we wanted to do is healthy working hours for everyone, whether or not you are a parent, the COVID crisis means that you cannot do certain things, you're recovering. You could create a flow of activities whenever you could. You could skip today, go to Thursday, come back to today. And so that was really, and you know, many tools make things certainly inclusive. Uh, because of them, you know, there are certain questions around accessibility, captioning, mobility that don't need to be questioned. Maybe we can talk about some of the disadvantages of this later on. And then cost was another issue. We often talk about visas, cost to travel, hotel expenses, all of these sort of go away. And then interactive, you know, I think Sasha mentioned earlier on the social element that we really wanted that to be, to try and recreate to the extent that we could, that bumping into the corridor to be introduced by someone else, to have kind of self organizing ability to chat everywhere and speak to everyone at any time. So these were the two. And whenever we faced a very difficult situation or we needed to make a decision or we were tweaking the design of the website, we would come back to these two principles. Do they support inclusion? Do they support accessibility? And then simplified our decision making also because we only had six weeks. Yeah. So um, in terms of the actual tools we used, so about three weeks before the conference, it became clear that we had a lot of ideas, but that it would be very hard to find someone that we could kind of pay to implement them. I have a a very close collaborator, uh, Hendrik Strobelt, uh, and we've worked for the last several years on visualization methods for understanding uh, AI systems. And so we have several collaborations on that front. And he mentioned that a couple years ago, he had built a tool for kind of document visualization and that he was very interested in revisiting some of these questions in kind of a world where we have AI methods supporting them. And so it seemed like a great opportunity for collaboration. And we were both quarantined, so we thought we would try it out. And so we decided we were just going to go for it and build what we could. Uh, We started with kind of a design that we wanted as much kind of browsing as possible, that we wanted to kind of have some search, but really we wanted to kind of have the experience that you're walking around a conference looking for what's cool and kind of seeing what's there. And so all our tools kind of build in kind of randomness first, a lot of kind of exploratory visualizations, things of that form. 
And then we also thought it would be fun to utilize a bunch of AI tools to make this possible. One tool we used was a CNN model for extracting pictures from papers. So we ran um, a Detectron system called PublayNet from IBM that actually allowed us to extract pictures from all the papers. And I actually posted a thread on Twitter of the, the best pictures from all the papers that we found. And then we uh, used a system that they had developed for ACL to do paper recommendations. They used it to do reviewer recommendations, but we adapted it for our conference. Uh, that came from uh, Graham uh, Neubig and uh, John Whiting uh, at CMU. And that used ILCM to embed the abstracts of all the papers. And we took basically uh, every paper written in ML on Semantic Scholar and trained a model overnight to learn how to do those recommendations. We use that for both similar papers within the conference itself, uh, but we also had a bot that recommended to everyone who attended the conference papers that they might want to check out. And we also added some randomness in to, to have them check out papers they may not have uh, been recommended directly. So that was kind of the basis and the goal of the work we were doing behind the scenes. And let me just um, add, if I can, just how much work and how amazing Sasha and Hendrik and, you know, the rest of the team was, because it became very clear to us early on that you could put Zoom together, Rocket Chat, all these things, but there's not a portal, a single way to bring these tools together in a way that gives everyone an experience. And, you know, without even thinking, Sasha just like one day coded this stuff up the next day, like, look here, you know, just very, very humble. He doesn't want to take credit for it. And then, you know, we just like, and I would just, you know, complain every day, like, you need to move this icon to the left. Can you just change the heading of this thing? Can you add this? And, you know, just uh, amazing effort, I think, from Sasha and Hendrik just to bring that all together. And um, I think that's the fun bit of uh, organizing these conferences also. I just find it incredible to pull that together in three weeks. I mean, in some sense, it's, it's more work than any of the, well, I'm sure this isn't true, but uh, as much work as would take to pull a paper together, plus more, it's probably several papers. Well, I'm not a very good web developer, but I did work as a software engineer before becoming a machine learning researcher. And there are a lot of people who are much better at this, but it, it was fun to kind of... But it's it. not traditionally academics that are good at it. That's what I think, you know, it's, it's not astounding me that like, you can go out there, you can get some consulting team, they'll pull something together for you in three weeks, uh, but it won't have baked in. I mean, and it's just... One thing it's making me think is how lucky we are as a community that we have people like yourselves and your collaborators that can do this. And and how actually how often in the the past we've broken ground, JMLR first online free journal, um, because we can sort of say, hey, well, we've got the skills to do this. Let's just go ahead and do it. And and how different that is for other communities. I mean, if you, you were running a conference in, you know, even a technical area like, um, let's say, some form of engineering, you wouldn't have the ability to say, well, we should extract all the images out of the papers and and uh, repurpose this natural language processing thing. Just train it on all the, oh no, let's just do that sure you know i mean i know it's an incredible amount of work even for yourselves but just just impossible for for most communities so i'm curious actually how how can we take some of those things and and go forward with them i hope i mean i'm, I'm fairly certain you've already i bet the icml chairs have been all over you um sort of for tips and ideas about how to do this stuff and i know in europe's there's um there's conversations about this, but is the is the 
is there something uh, going forward in terms of how to pull this together, a sort of guide that... Um... Well, the worst thing is, as I precisely know, just at the moment you finish this, the last thing Shakir and Sasha want to do is see anything to do with ICLR, like, ever again. You know, there's a sort of... I know from experience, the last thing you want to do is like, oh, let's just tidy this all up and turn this into a general framework for conference production. (laughs) That's kind of like not the thing on your list. Well, so so practically, practically, we have an email thread with all the other general chairs. So I've I've had conversations with CBPR, ACL, AMNLP, yeah, ICML. There is a lot of conversations going on behind the scenes. And I think I'm hoping actually that other conferences try out different methods as well. Um, I think some things worked really well for ICLR, but I, I don't think we've really completely nailed this. So I think we're still in a kind of experimental phase. In terms of the tooling, everything we built is open source. So uh, we're putting it on a GitHub repo. The The name at the moment is MiniConf, but we'll see where we end up with that. And so hopefully other people will take it and, and run with it. The actual, there's actually not that that much code there. So uh, I think it should be reasonable, easy for people to take in and use for other events. So in terms of lessons learned, you, you've both talked about the thing that most pleasantly surprised you, but um, Sasha, perhaps starting with you, what what thing would you have changed or what, or what idea did you think, oh my goodness, if we'd done that, that could have taken it to another level sort of post-conference. The thing you'd most like to have changed about the whole experience. Yeah, so I can start there. I think that we don't have a great solution for the face-to-face, one-on-one conversations yet for conferences. I personally found it a little bit difficult to jump into Zoom rooms for posters. Some people really enjoyed it and and, and jumped right in. But I think particularly for people who are maybe... I don't know, not 21 or not totally kind of willing to just try something completely new, it can be a little bit scary. We experimented with some tools during the conference. We had a kind of uh, a little, we called it iClear Town, uh, where it was like kind of little avatars walking around and talking to each other. And uh, it was really fun and, and gave a kind of different view on, on how one-on-one conversations might happen at a conference. But really, I think it's more of a social question of how we get to that point where we make it as easy to go talk to someone or kind of have a conversation kind of randomly as it would be in, in kind of a real conference per se. Yeah, I would agree with Sasha that that idea of the poster session is the one that sort of in terms of the conference's structure needs to be worked on. But the thing that I think for me that I'm actually trying to push forward in another end is the opportunities that the virtual conference brings for questions of equity and inclusion in our machine learning field. And I think this was where a lot more work could be done because, you know, there's simple things. We don't have a single sign on on the website that we had. ICML will have one. So there's certain things around online safeties, privacies, protections that we couldn't really didn't have time to do. Our website doesn't really support people who may have autism, hearing impairments, uh, visual impairments in particular. And I think this is a, an area that we can do so much more to really include people on board. So I'd like to, you know, figure out where this is, where those barriers are, where were the gaps. And there, I think there's like so much uh, opportunity to really, you know, innovate and change the whole kind of conference setup. So um, I'm trying to convince people. I sit in the Royal Society's Diversity Committee and I have a thread which I'm trying to convince them to collect some data, do a case study or for us to do some kind of a report where we can actually communicate different mechanisms of organizing in scientific communities that particularly support questions of inclusion, access, equity, Um, because I think there's so many things that work out really well in this format. One question I have is, uh, 
how did the the communal sense of the conference play out in, in the all the things that you're talking about um are fantastic but there's this also this weird and maybe it's got too much recently with like the scale of our conferences but this whole like we're all participating in the same event and we're we're here so there's nothing else going on you know where versus like oh actually i'm at home and i've got kids and and stuff like that um or whatever so this is just part of my life (laughs) um we certainly did hear that from some people i'm debating in some sense whether i think it's a positive or a negative in some sense it makes a conference much more accessible to someone who has kids who might not have attended otherwise in that format but it is lacking the kind of complete disconnection you get when you go to an event where you're just able to turn everything off and kind of work on just the problems of the conference itself. We did see some people who really did treat it that way, and we recommended that the people did. But um, obviously that's not something everyone can do, and so being able to support a more asynchronous format might be a kind of positive aspect of this sort of event. And I'm actually curious, you know, given what you're saying, but let Shakir come in in a moment just to follow up on what you're saying. It's, is it a conference? Or is it something new? I think as Shakir's sort of been saying, and like in a world where COVID is gone, you know, are we sometimes doing this and sometimes getting together physically for different purposes? And, you know, in particular, what I think is is disturbing about where the community's gone, which wasn't true in the past, is that somehow you have to be at these conferences in order to be a participant in the community. Whereas if we go back 200 years ago, you know, Laplace and Gauss weren't traveling across Europe to get together and stuff. They just wrote each other letters. You know, they had this technology, pen, paper. They had mules taking stuff across Europe and they corresponded. So it doesn't seem that you actually have to get together to do this, but somehow we are forcing people to, right? Um I I sort of am with you that I'm almost oscillating on whether or not it's a good thing. I think in some sense, because it's so new, people just don't know how to think about it. And I think once we get used to it, we can change our minds. And I think what the virtual conference has clearly shown is that we have many ways of connecting with each other and forming a community of people beyond just meeting together physically. And that we can do them in accessible ways that allows you not to give full time for a week and jet lag and all of these things that people, you know, like Sasha, like Kyunghyun, like Martha, who ran a mentorship session during the week that you can create these things on the fly. People can do it. That would never happen otherwise. You get different kinds of things. So, you know, I think we there's we enter a world where both are kind of possible and maybe it is something new, but uh, I also think it's once we get used to it, then questions of poster sessions being awkward, not knowing how to jump onto a call, they change because, you know, and then we figure it out. I, I It was making me think a bit about like when TV was invented and people say, oh, that'll be the end of the cinema. No more cinema. You know, why would you go? And of course, it, it did change aspects of the cinema. You didn't go to the cinema to watch the news reel anymore. You kind of just watched that at home. And and of course, some cinemas closed, but but we still have cinemas today, uh, even though we've got a lot of TVs. But uh, Sasha, I think you wanted to come in on what, what Shakir was saying. Yeah, I'll just add that it, it was something we were thinking about in the iClear board a bit even before uh, COVID, particularly with um, issues of uh, climate change and questions of carbon emission. Um, about kind of allowing people who might not feel comfortable or may have hit their carbon allowance for the year 
to present in different ways. So I think in some sense, this gave us a chance to kind of experiment or, or move ahead with, with ideas we may have been thinking about otherwise. The other thing that was interesting to me is that the participants felt slightly different than what I would normally see at a conference. So um, in some of the socials I was in, I met people who just would have been unable to travel at all. So uh, there were uh, actually many students who were VPNing from Iran. Uh, I met a student who was um, actually um, a, a Kurdish student from Iraq. Uh, and there was um, several students from Venezuela as well, just who would have had a lot of trouble getting visas, particularly to the U.S. Um, so it changes, it changes literally who can attend and who gets to exchange the information. And do you think, Neil, I think it's really interesting to think about this being the difference between um, when TV was invented and then people said, oh, well, this will be the death of the cinema. Cinema. Do we think that so this only came about really because we were we were forced? There were discussions around questions of like carbon impact and um, you know cost and inclusion and things like that. But really, we only got to this inflection point because we can't now touch each other, and the question got got forced. Do we think that we'll be able to continue to see development around these things and like exploration in these questions of like, how do we exchange information like this? And what does it mean to be using these pathways that are more that allow other people to be more included more easily than they would be otherwise? Or are we just going to sort of revert once once we can be within proximity of, you know, six to 18 feet of each other? I think the world is a different place and the world of conferences is a different place now. I think before what was different is that even as we were designing the conference and thinking about it, when you could never imagine what it would look like, feel like, be like, it was very hard to even motivate yourself to even do that. But now everyone has that vision. They already know for themselves, oh, if I had to do this, I would do it differently. And I think that thread now never leaves anyone. And so this is the opportunity for us to seize that just to make it a bit more. So I think, you know, we're going to experiment with many more hybrid formats to see whether that works, what that looks like, the advantages and disadvantages advantages of those kind of settings. Maybe we'll create entirely new conferences. If we are thinking our conferences are too big, now we can create a whole new conference. It can be fully virtual always. And that opportunity is there. We can get the code, check out GitHub from Sasha's repository, and it's doable. So I think um, the world and the, our, you know, our way of thinking about meeting and exchanging scientific information and what a conference is for is different. Now, a conference doesn't need to just be be all in one, a place you present your work, get famous, get credibility, get a job, make new friends, um, travel and see the world. You can separate these kind of aspects in many different ways. So I think there's a lot of fun exploration to do there. What do you think, Sasha? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be totally glass half full. I mean, there's obviously benefits of real conferences, and I would hate if, say, funding agencies or other aspects of the academic system decide that once we have virtual conferences, we don't need to have real conferences, we shouldn't support them. I mean, I think that, that that's a, a fantastic thing, and I would love to see it continue as part of the system itself. But maybe this can support or supplement or kind of be part of the changing nature of academic publishing and academic idea exchange. I like that notion of not being a totally half full person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be totally half empty about it either. <laughs> Fair enough. I think it was a great position to take. I, I think that, you, but I, I like the spectrum of responses, you know, both even within the two of you who have experienced it. And and I, what I love about it is it it's, it's related to the possibilities point. I'd agree that we don't, 
we're not rush into sort of destroying something that's been the essence of academic communication for the, well, the best part of 80 years. I, I was reading about Boltzmann going to the World's Fair in St. Louis in, uh, I think it was 1904. Um, but it was a very depressing trip for him because they wouldn't let him speak on physics because of the whole Boltzmann particle thing. But so let's not go too deeply into that. But I was thinking it's crazy. So traveling across the world by boat to to give a talk on it wasn't Boltzmann machines for those of you who are wondering and I, I think there's something sort of remarkable about that when you read about those old scientists they went on these tours sort of like the North Americans came to Europe and toured over over a period of months and I think there's something about the meetings they had which when you read the history of what they did it was extremely influential on in what they did later so I, I sort of agree that it feels like this sort of but I guess it's hard to imagine exactly which parts belong where from the conference, you know, which parts perhaps. And, and the hybrid model also sounds interesting. As you were saying that, I was thinking about um, the fact that I think a couple of years ago, one of my colleagues on the uh, Europe program committee was ill and ended up watching the talks from their bed. And they sort of said, actually, I think it was a better experience <laughs> sitting in the 18,000 person auditorium or whatever it is. And actually then a year afterwards, I started doing, oh, this is good. You can drink coffee. Yeah. So, but you know, of course the nice thing was once the talk was over, you could go out and see people and catch up. It's, uh, it's a really vital part of that. So one last question as we wrap up, and I know that we're only about uh, a week or so out from from this actual experience, but um, taking a look or reflecting on how you saw information get exchanged, I think one of the problems that a lot of the conferences have had in the past couple of years has been being bounded by like room size and things like that. So talks will be slotted into a space which is just like physically cannot accommodate the number of people who want to go in and see that talk. Do you think that this virtual um, setting changed the information that was getting exchanged, like the the rate at which things were getting out or uh, the way that things were talked about? I can talk a little bit about that. Um, one thing that was interesting is when we looked at the statistics for posters, we found that during the conference itself, on average, posters were seeing 100 to 1,000 unique viewers, which is just not a huge number for the internet, but way more than you'd imagine actually could go to see a poster at a conference itself. That was interesting to see to kind of how, how you might scale that process. Another interesting aspect is we also did see kind of some clustering around posters that were having interesting discussions. So say the top 50 posters that had discussions in them actually had quite extensive discussions. And several people would post threads on Twitter that's like, oh, actually, there's like a really interesting conversation going on at this poster here and with a link. Um, and so you do see those sort of effects that you might see at a conference in a positive way, but kind of maybe at a slightly larger scale um, in terms of dissemination of information. Uh, you were making me think a little bit about watching live football, by which, of course, I, I don't mean American football. I mean soccer but there's there's those in the stadium right and then there's those watching at home but but the the big audience is at home nowadays i don't think we'll ever get to like you know sixty thousand at old trafford and and it being watched kids getting up in china in the middle of the night to turn on <laughs> but i i guess the one thing i find very difficult about zoom is is the audience feedback thing when you're trying to give a talk or even the, just the weird bit where it ends and it's sort of like, and that's the end of my talk. 
silence. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy that we're doing job talks on Zoom. It seems like, oh, it seems terrible. Uh, I mean, well, particularly I when you can't see the faces. And no actually, choice, as a speaker, but... you typically can't because you've got this, this, you're sharing the screen. And, you know, but then there's this slightly odd effect that you get this sort of film strip of the random people it happens to have chosen to show you who aren't necessarily <laughs> the, the important ones. But then there's some like random people sitting there eating sandwiches and stuff. <laughs> Oh, looking away at the kid, which is fine. It's like all fine, but it's like, but this isn't really, you know, it, it, when you're giving a, a real talk, if there's someone who's a bit distracted, that's fine as well. You just kind of look at someone else and uh, pick your eyes up. If, you, if you've got the, the three most distracted people in your little film strip underneath at the bottom, it's pretty like disconcerting <laughs> to keep giving your talk. But there was something, and I think it was on one of the, um, the Ellis Network's been doing seminars on COVID, on COVID. And one thing they did there, which I thought was really nice, which was at the end of the talk, they asked everyone to unmute and applaud. And then, uh, which uh, I, I thought, that, you know, surprisingly nice, actually. It's surprisingly fulfilling. Maybe in the future, like the 21-year-olds. I love it as we speak to these what I consider young researchers here, that there's an entire generation of people they see as, as young themselves. Someone I had a post the other day, um, which early career PIs should I follow? And I started thinking, it's like, well, my God, everyone's early career now, aren't they? <laughs> what do you mean by early career? <laughs> it feels so big. Me and Shakira, we're very, we're very good at Twitter, but we don't have our TikTok yet, our academic TikTok. So. <laughs> yeah, the academic TikTok, that's going to be the next. You heard it here first on Talking Machines, up to head with the trends, academic TikTok. But yeah, for, so for these people, they're going to, oh, there was this applause thing. They used to actually hurt their hands. Weird. Uh, <laughs> now we just click like or emoticons at the end of a talk. Little hearts pop up like we're watching Twitch. And in the middle of your talk, you sort of say, another thousand subscribers and I'm all going to send you a copy of my next preprint. Uh, whatever what the web bloggers do. <laughs> But that's so it's so fascinating. It is it is those little things like those little social cues and and being able to respond and being able to like say to someone like quickly aside to them after they've done something like good job or like that was really interesting. Those are the things that are like the the social glue that make those in-person experiences remarkable. And to be able to be already at a place where you, Sasha and Shakir have been thinking about like how do we create serendipity and like how do we create randomness and how do we create these little moments of delight by like having a recommender box to like bring you a paper that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Those things I think are really going to be the details that really make these conferences come alive. And Neil, I think it's fascinating to think about these things as like, you know, we're, we, we have virtual and physical experiences all the time. Like, of course there are, there are football games that like you don't attend, but you watch, like that's not an unusual experience, but getting over this like uncanny valley of like, what is this thing that I was so used to before? And now how do I recreate that in this space? And what, what do the, what are the new, like, what's a skeuomorphism for clapping, right? Like, how do we, how do we do that? Such an enigma yeah, actually, to have. Yeah, please. One of our, one of our kind of asynchronous models was talking about watching the Olympics uh, when it goes on and how there's just like a, a total cornucopia of different events going on at all times. And some of them you watch live and some of them you kind of catch later and you find yourself watching like fencing and you never knew you liked fencing, but actually it's really neat. And like, I just, that, that ability to have all that at once is kind of the part of a conference I really love. 
Sasha, Shakir, you guys have put all of this work into this. It's really amazing. But you you had the you also had the support of the rest of the organizing committee and and other people. And who who else was working with you on this massive undertaking? So a huge thanks really to all the people who made it happen. Kyung Hyun Cho, Martha White, Dawn Song, uh, Gabriel Senev, Asia Fisher. Anima Anakumar, Kevin Swirsky uh, were our workshop and our um, DNI chairs. And then we have Hendrik Strobelt, who was our virtual chair, Adam White, who was our social chair, and Andrea Brown and Lee Campbell, who were the iClear secretaries, who did all the amazing work supporting us in venue, technology, all the finances, logistics, all these kind of things. A really amazing team and so much uh, gratitude and thanks to them all. Uh, I would call it Timnit Gebru and Asubi Bekele. Oh, I can't, um, maybe you can say his name, Shakira. Asubi Bekele, I think, or something. <laughs> and they were our logistic chairs for when we were planning to go to Ethiopia. Who we've had, uh, I think he's, he also, is he, go, is he also go by the name of Michael? Michael Bekele. I think, oh, I don't know. We, we spoke to, when we were in um, Ethiopia for for DSA, which I feel really bad about for them because they were so, so excited. They were putting so much work into gaining it together. I was like totally torn talking to them because they were so pleased and excited and also pretty certain that they would be able to do everything with like full on internet. And I was partially in the mind, no, we want these people to experience shitty internet and difficult conditions and know that it's hard. But it's so hard to know, isn't it? Like, like everyone flies to Ethiopia and, oh, this is fucking great. You know, the internet's amazing. Everything works. No, don't make it all work. They did an amazing job, uh, Tim Newton, uh, also in addition to many other people on the team, our events team, Yoadan, and then actually lots of government officials who have been sort of working security, police presence, Ministry of the Interior, just so many conversations that happened. Is there a plan to... Is there a plan to sort of to reconnect and do something there or is is that still not clear? <laughs> too far away, too much uncertainty. So I wanted to just read you a poem very quickly, which I thought oh, it's a little extract of prose, which I, I really liked, which I think describes our team in some sense of the things we did. It's uh, called Imagination by James Baldwin, short little extract. And he says, imagination creates the situation and then the situation creates imagination. It may, of course be the other way around. Columbus was discovered by what he found. And I think that's us. Our iClear team, that was us. We were discovered. <laughs> that's great. I love it so much. <laughs> that is great. That's a great poem. Shakir and Sasha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. It's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you both. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Catherine. <laughs> That is it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. <laughs>